This is Found in the Rockies, a podcast about the startup ecosystem in the Rocky Mountain region, featuring the founders, funders, and contributors, and most importantly, the stories of what they're building. I'm Les Craig from Next Frontier Capital, and on today's episode, we have Danielle Schutz, who is the founding partner and managing director of the New Community Transformation Fund, focusing on investments as a tool for economic equity. Hi, Danielle. Thanks so much for joining us today. Hi, thanks for having me. I'm excited to have you. And we just met, which is fun. It's always fun when I meet a guest for the first time on our episode. Um, So... All the more reason why we need to start at the beginning. I want to hear all about who you are, where you came from. I know you're in Denver now, but I want to hear all about what your path and what led you to uh, where you are at this stage in life. Yeah, well, I am one of the very few um, Colorado natives, actually. So I was born and raised in Colorado Springs, Colorado. My dad was a military man. He was in the Air Force. So that's where he landed and had us. And um, then I went to see you, Denver, and have been in Denver ever since. So born and raised. <laughs> Incredible. What a yeah. uh, what an amazing place to grow up. I got to tell you, I just uh, took my kids to the sports camps at the Air Force Academy this summer. In, so in fun. The yeah, it was great. <laughs> and now, of course, you know, I'm a West Point grad, but now, of course, I have a son who wants to go to the Air Force Academy. So I don't know what I'm going to do with him. Oh, rough. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. My son's at Mines. And so even he hasn't, he's at the Colorado School of Mines. Uh, he's a senior. And so even, even he hasn't hasn't left yet but i think my daughter will be the one she's she's a junior in high school i think she's okay. going to be the one to to leave the state on us <laughs> Good for her that's great well it's a tough place to leave and i know even a lot of the folks that we know that maybe grew up there they tend to always kind of boomerang back and and you know such a great place to raise a family it really so, is tell, what'd you study what'd you study in college what was kind of your early kind of uh, you know interests and passions yeah so i um have a business degree um, in school and I'm a, a most of my career I'm a behavioral economist and a chief financial officer and so I've spent uh, m- much of my career in finance and so I was a CFO for the state health department uh, a few years after graduating college and then went was vice president of finance and uh, business operations for the West Division of Comcast and then was the chief oh. financial officer for the Colorado Trust so that's my background before I started my own fund. Wow. So interesting, interesting pivot then from, I mean, very corporate, right? Comcast. Yes. Yes. As corporate as it gets. Tell me, tell me about that. Well, first tell me about that experience and for you, like, what was that like? And then, and then the decision to kind of make a pretty major pivot from there. It's interesting. It's like, I think at the foundational root of all of it has sort of been this, uh, the economist in me, this uh, person who really like studies consumer behavior. And so wherever I've been, whether it was at, you know, the state, you know, learning that money and sort of the behavior around tax dollars and how that flows through the system. And then going into corporate America, which was another huge pivot, which I think there's always been pivots in my career. That probably is a good summary <laughs> of how I make decisions. Um, but corporate America, which I loved Comcast. It was an incredibly financially disciplined company. We did a lot of mergers and acquisitions, and I was over strategic financial planning and analysis and sort of pulling things apart and putting them back together to, to see how to make money. And so really like at the root of it is like what's happening in the world what's happening with the consumer what's happening with our macroeconomic condition in the country um to really sort of drive financial outcomes and change is sort of the way my brain naturally works and so i've been able to do it in different industries 
um, went into philanthropy. And so now I'm in this really unique position where I kind of understand how all the money flows <laughs> into it. And I had an investment portfolio at the Colorado Trust, but realized that for, for me, there was a huge gap in in the market around what, what we do now at NCTF Denver. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's why I decided to launch my own fund about a year and a half ago. Wow. Very cool. And and uh, for the for our listeners that aren't familiar with the Colorado Trust, tell us a little bit more about that. It, it, it's is it basically fundraising services for nonprofits in the greater in the state of Colorado or what? So it's a private foundation. And oh, so okay. it has an endowment it doesn't ever raise money. So we invest the endowment and then based on that. So pretty traditional uh, philanthropic organization do grant making and nonprofit work uh, in in the state of Colorado. So it was a originally a health plan that converted over into a private foundation. Oh. Yeah. So it was a, when I left there, the endowment was about $600 million. So that's all invested in a pretty traditional portfolio in the market. And then um, with returns, you do charitable work. I see. Mm-hmm. I mean, you, you've, so you've probably seen a, just, you know, quite a swath of the entire state when it comes to organizations, fundraising, grant applications. I mean, you've probably seen it all, right? I've seen it all from, you know, government grants and contracts all the way to now, you know, philanthropy and, you know, even just I've been on nonprofit board since I was 19 in Denver when I was at CU Denver. So, um, yeah, I have seen it all. It's been quite the ecosystem. I always like I give them so much credit. I definitely grew my career up here. Right. And that's been super helpful for me um, from like a social capital perspective. Sure. Very cool. And then, so the decision to, you started uh, the daily, the daily boss up. Is that, is that right? Is that you? Yeah, that was my first company. First company. (laughs) All right. I love the name. I want to know, I want to know what it was, what it is. Uh, Yeah, Yeah, it was. So it was um, like, it was after I had started doing speaking, it was after my first TED talk and I would always get you know, the same inbound from young professionals, like growing their career. And I, I, I became a CFO for the first time when I was 26. And then a vice president um, at 32 at Comcast. I was always the youngest executive in the room. So it was this like idea of like, what does it mean to be a millennial and leading these huge teams that I had? And I was always getting these inbounds, which of course I you know couldn't spend all my time that way. So we started a dig- sort of a digital leadership coaching platform where we mm-hmm. sent, sent um, sort of coaching and homework and coaching videos, but we sent it every day via text message. So we might have a theme like for the week it's confidence and so you'd get maybe my favorite podcast on that i might do a video coaching that you get and then you have homework to do and you can connect across the network and so that's why it was called the daily boss up and so we were just love it. we're meeting people where they are in their phones and yeah. <laughs> it's sort of a part of the market where nobody was out you know nobody was out there executive coaches are really expensive you usually don't get them until you're an executive yeah. and so we wanted to sort of uh, do what we could in that space so it's always it's been a fun journey and it was a subscription model so it, it runs quite easily and so that's mm-hmm. been great <laughs> and, and you and and you were uh you started that a few years before covid but essentially we're running it through covid and so oh, i mean i would oh, imagine yeah. of all times like you know very relevant timing for that that opportunity any any stories or experiences for just just the the touch that you had during covid with with some of your listeners or? well i think that my favorite part for me was yeah it just was great timing to to be doing something digitally like that but it was that we have subscribers and like four continents in the world and so to hear from people in australia or canada or you know europe and and everyone 
is like sort of resonating with the same things in their career, I think was really um, eye-opening for me about actually how small the world has become because of the digital age, right, that we all were raised in. So that was my favorite part is like just getting to hear from people in Australia <laughs> or whatever, you know, any time of day. Because if you respond to the text, we actually do get that inflow. Um, yeah. And they're able to sort of have community in that way. So I really loved that. That's cool. And how is, is that, that, that tribe of folks still active today? Is it still the community still? Still active today. So we're not taking on any new subscribers these days. Um, uh, But I am actually going to hire a CEO over that here in a month or two. I'm already in negotiations. I've wanted her for about a year. (laughs) So convincing so that we can keep that thing blowing up while I've got a ton of other stuff going on. (laughs) Well, congrats. We'll stay tuned. We'll put the link to, we'll put the link to daily boss up in the show notes, just in case you do open it up. uh, Yeah. Yeah. Members. What, what about, uh, what about have have you have you explored or or considered you know uh, applications of of AI to 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 scale or is that kind of like uh, a no no because it's it's like it's got to be personal touch it's got to be human to human yeah I you know I think um, the new CEO will be able to take that I think that's when you okay. know it's right time to hire somebody for me it has been it's always been my voice like it's it's yeah. I, I spoke in my voice I wrote every piece of exactly. content every quote uh, uh, it'll be good to see what yeah. what she decides to do with it and I really want the content to be you know much bigger than, than mine and who she brings to the table and those types of things so I think it'll be a really fun ride <laughs> well, well, it sounds like you got a lot of great training data if you did want to go down that route. Yeah, Oh, yes, we do. <laughs> yeah. Very cool. Well, congratulations on that successful start and um, and continued prosperity of that business. That's amazing. Um, you mentioned it earlier, and I, I wanted to go back to it because I we also, as we kind of feature you on today's episode, I want to point people to some of your other co- amazing content that's out there that I checked out recently um, when I was doing a little homework. Uh, <laughs> you, you've, you've actually spoken twice as a TEDx speaker. Is that yes. right? Yes. Yeah. Yes. And uh, <laughs> not, not a surprise, by the way, that, that you know, uh, having a, you know, a military veteran in the family, you talked about leadership in both of these. Right? <laughs> exactly right. Tell, That's been... give, us, give us the cliff notes. Give us kind of the, the theme of the talk of, of each of the talks. Yeah, I think it's been the predominant um, theme in my career because I became a leader so young. Right. So, yeah. you know, I had like two years, uh, you know, in, in my career as a financial analyst before I ended up getting promoted to CFO. And so it wasn't, I've not had a traditional career in the way that like every day I have my own checklist. I've always had to get work done through other people. And I've sort of been like, fundamentally, that's been my life. I I had my son Kai when I was 16 years old. And so he's like been on this journey with me too. And so by by the time I graduated college, I had both my kids, they're 16 and 21 now. And I'm like, leadership and sort of like this horizontal way in which I approach the world and and approach you know being someone's boss is is just about my age and like the the first TED talk was kind of like it's a great thing not not Mm -hmm. a not great thing right you know you were it was like at the time when like millennials were really coming into the workforce and people were like oh my gosh like the stigma about that I'm like uh-uh, the way that we are should be leveraged um, for leadership in the future. And I knew that it would significantly change the market. And that certainly has come true um, in, in good ways and bad ways. But I think about that, I, you know, demography, demography is so important in behavioral economics, right? Like generations and how do people behave in that generation? And what is that going to mean for the market? And what is it going to mean for 
our political atmosphere and what is it going to mean for all the things. And so those those have been, you know, sort of the driving forces in my career when I think about leadership and, and the way the environment is going to create different leaders uh, every step of the way. So um, they're they're both the, they're both in that vein. <laughs> Very cool. Well, if you if you if you're listening and you like what you you like the teaser, I encourage you to check them out. They're both great talks. So very cool. What um and 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 so uh you know you've 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 obviously got got some some great content out there. You, you started the daily boss up. Um, also, just I know we're kind of going a little bit out of order, but I I wanted to I wanted to uh, emphasize as well. Um, you've got some interesting stuff just from from your history at CU. There's there's a there's a mural there yeah. that right? tell us about that i mean you know so coach Prime, coach prime's getting all the all the airtime these days we want to we want to focus on some other cool, yeah, exactly yeah cool yeah you know such a huge part of my journey is that i, I see Denver alumni and um about mm-hmm. a year and a half ago they called and said hey we're doing this mural project for some of our alumni and They've always been very good to me and very proud of me. And it's like, okay, cool, a mural. You know, I didn't like think it was like a whole wall. Like, yeah. <laughs> it's huge. Yeah. Uh, but it was special. Um, uh, Detour, who is just ahead of his time, and we're so lucky to have that artist in Denver. Um, the interesting thing is, like, we actually went to school together at the same time. Oh, no way. And I had just had my daughter, and so I was a junior in college at the time, and uh, I, I I knew he painted back then, so he wasn't detour back then. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> he, was, he was a painter. He was some, yeah, but he was God, so talented already, dude. and he painted uh, this picture we had taken, my husband, my kids, and I of our feet when my daughter had like little baby five weeks. So I like went to the ATM and got a hundred bucks and gave him a hundred bucks. So I have like an original detour and I would never be able to afford another one. I'm sure. (laughs) That's amazing. And then all these years later, 15 years later, he painted the mural. Oh, that is so special. special. It was special in all the ways. I can't wait. Next time I'm, I'm going to actually make it. I'm going to put that on my agenda. Next time I'm in uh, in Boulder, I'm going to go check it out. That sounds It's awesome. down in Denver. Yeah. Oh, it's, it's in down Denver? In Denver. Oh, yeah, okay. it's across from the Pepsi Center. <laughs> oh, my goodness. Yep. Wow. On the, on the um, Metro and U- University of Colorado Denver campus. Oh, so cool. What a fun experience. I mean, you, you've just done some. I just wanted to highlight. I know it's kind of like a sprinkling of some random things but you've done some cool stuff early on in your career but like you said you got started early with with you know your leadership and everything so it's no surprise that you've already accomplished a lot of a lot of neat things i'm very cool and i feel like i'm just getting started at the same time so that's pretty it's i'm always i'm always dancing that line (laughs) yeah so take us to the current i I really wanted to focus the bulk of the episode on what you're currently doing with the new community transformation fund uh, I'd love to hear about what it is, the origin story of like how you conceptualized it and and are moving forward with it. Yeah, so I was, you know, managing an investment portfolio and moving money to do direct investing out of that portfolio versus just through an investment consultant, which is how most invest- investments are managed. And just learning um, a lot just in my own work and sort of have a thesis about sort of the economics of race and gender and what's going on and what is going to happen with pay inequities over time and all kinds of things. And so really thinking through like, how do we actually solve at a macroeconomic level for the fact that now 70% of our country are are women and people of color and the financial outcomes are so disparate. 
that mm-hmm. actually fundamentally I, I'm like, how are we going to keep being the greatest wealth power in the world if we don't start to solve for these inequities and some of these gaps? Because you just have a rate volume problem, right? You've got too much of your volume is making sense on the dollar, not investing, not saving for retirement at the same rate. Our businesses are undercapitalized. You're like, wait a minute, like that's all of capitalism. And if we're doing that on cents on the dollars now with with this uh, new group of, of folks in our country, then we, we have a sort of fundamental math problem that I just, um, once I know we have a math problem, I wanna be a part of the solve. So we started NCTF Denver. Um, the original NCTF came out of Grand Rapids, Michigan. And so they, they uh, Kwame Anku is a owner of that fund as well. And he has Black Star Fund, he's in California. and sort of uh, convinced me over time to just do it. <laughs> I was trying to get somebody else to start a fund, <laughs> but we, um, we, you know, enough people came to the table and, and uh, convinced, hey, let's do this, let's go start a fund. So we're structured, you know, like a venture capital fund, but we actually operate more like a private equity fund. Um, mm. we're, in, we're incredibly high touch. I, I cut much bigger checks. We're still in the early stage phase, but we cut bigger checks up front because I actually think part of the issue is the system of having to constantly raise rounds. Like I can make yeah. great money. I can make great money as a fund manager, but it's not a wealth building strategy. Right. So um, especially in this market uh, that, uh, you know, we were in front of when I was raising the fund, but certainly was concerned about sort of the fragility of the market of venture, if I'm being honest, as an asset yeah. class. So we were like, how do we get in front of that? um for our founders and sort of incubate them around more than just a check so you know bringing folks from corporate america in and having shared back office support and shared cfos and shared ctos like i'm an old school fundamentals of business lady and so how do we like actually just grow and scale companies because we're doing it more um Sort of for the future of the economic condition and so that that's we launched that and now i've termed this it's it's interesting like we're probably three weeks before we'll announce this so it'll be great um but we're rebranding the fund to the domestic emerging market investment fund so that's what i've sort of branded our thesis and so now we're going to call the fund that which will be demi d-e-m-i demi fund um because that's what we're doing is investing in an an emerging market right here in the united states um you know you invest in the venezuelan economy and other things in a portfolio but we've got this own our own sort of under leveraged uh group of folks that we should be investing in here for the future of capitalism so yeah so that's why i started it I love I love the elegance of that strategy because I mean you, you there's a lot there's a lot to unpack there that you 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 very elegantly described um but but you know when I think about some of the greatest challenges of founders in general in the region it's the fact that they raise it's it's not necessarily always about access to capital it's about access to the next stage right mm-hmm. and and if you can get companies sufficiently funded from the get-go like frankly like a lot of our coastal peers when they're raising these monster rounds you know at the earliest of stages it de-risks some of that future investment because you just have more more runway to make mistakes and learn and that's um, exactly right. The, yeah. I always say the winners are chosen and then the wins get engineered is what Kwame <laughs> added to it. And it's true. That's what ends yes. up happening is that we, yeah. we the ones where we're like, we want you to win. That's where we'll go put all our money. Well, I just don't want to be in the game of eight out of 10 of my companies failing. And so we right. just have a very different approach to that because we want to build wealth. So I need eight out of 
10 of my companies to win. And quite frankly, eight companies becoming $100 million companies is a much better return profile and much better for society. And so then then even better for everybody. Exactly. Better for everybody. $1 billion company. And so we're very close to our founders. We're in their business, I say, but they know that up front. And, um, you know, we're sitting in rooms. I'm in Boston right now. We'll be negotiating contracts on their behalf. And because we, we actually want to see these companies grow and scale and the people that had these brilliant ideas underneath it. So that's why we sort of function even more like a PE firm. And we're really doubling down on that strategy as the venture market has become something interesting since March. <laughs> yes, it has. <laughs> we could do a whole episode on that. Uh, so, so with the the uh, with the demi fund um, as you're as you're rebranding it, what is yeah. what is sort of the sort of qualify it maybe for some of our founders that are listening? Uh, obviously, you're you're focused on on BIPOC founders, from what I understand, mm-hmm. yep. which is is amazing. What um what else what else are you kind of looking for? Is it is there geographic bounds or is it sort of national? Yeah. Rate? So. On fund one, about 60 to 70% of my fund from a dollar perspective will be Colorado companies. So you're either in Colorado or willing to be there. Um, I've got local dollars. The state of Colorado is an LP in my fund. The city and county of Denver is an LP in my fund. So we've done some really interesting um, things with that uh, to really grow our ecosystem in Colorado. Wonderful. Um, We are industry agnostic because I invest in founders of color and women um, founding teams. And so we really don't think about the industry, but we do think about um, sort of the business model of, uh, uh, I said earlier, but rate volume. Like we Mm -hmm. want you to be building things that will affect the volume of the market, which I think is getting really left behind, right? So it's often the stuff people don't find too sexy that we find really sexy. So (laughs) so we're like, you know, you're solving for problems that the the greater uh, American consumer might be experiencing. Mm -hmm. Um, and, and that stuff just gets left off the table. Um, we are early stage pre-seed seed series A for the most part, um, a, a check size, but we don't, we're not in like the big valuation game either because we are a patient fund. We patient capital, patient growth really mm-hmm. wants you to grow and scale your company. So we, you know, I won't get in on valuations much bigger than 15 million. It's probably, we're probably just not the right partner. For mm-hmm. that now, of course, with founders of color and women, we um, don't have that problem often that we're overvalued. So that's been that part of the thesis has proven to be true, where we're not having to write we're not having to write down companies because companies are more starting on top of their skis. That's right. Yeah, that's, that's right. Great. That's I mean, right. It's just a healthier way. It is <laughs> a healthier way to raise. It's better. You know, I I feel like sometimes we get so out of whack that we forget that it is better for everybody when we're on top of our on top of our skis. I mean. Right. It, yeah. It feels good. Founders, I mean, it feels good to get that valuation of 50 million, but it's paper money. And so, you know, That's like right. I think we we've lost sight of it sometimes in the asset class that you you actually have to go build a company that makes that makes that make sense. Yep. Um and Some, got, someday it has to get real. <laughs> yeah. paper has to be yeah. real. I mean, this is why our IPO market has been so dry yes. in the country is because we we've been ahead of ourselves on valuation for about 10 years and eventually that starts to reset itself. And so I think we've got companies that are rightfully valued, growing, there's milestones and they're under leverage, right? They're not out there with a bunch of debt and things like that. Right. That's We're not big fans of that. So um, I'd rather take debt topside, like at a holding company level, right? And mm-hmm. and and put cash into our companies than have them all out getting, getting debt. So we're just 
doing it differently, I guess, is the word to say. <laughs> which has been hard because, you know, you have LPs or especially, you know, I'm a first time fund manager and, um, you know, we've raised one of the largest funds that a black woman's raised it ever in the history of the country um, for, exactly. for a sole GP. And, and it's hard. It's, it's people, there's a lot of bias in that. There's a lot of, oh, you're riskier in some way, right? Even though I have this very storied business career and I've actually done money compared to a lot of fund right. managers, but still, it's yeah. still this like idea that it's riskier. And um, it's been hard. It's been hard to explain, hey, we're going to do this differently but we you know we also um have really great great lps for the most part and i've got institutional money which i know is really a blessing so my average check size coming into the fund was four million so only oh. have yeah i only have nine lps oh what a, <laughs> what yeah, a joy yeah. to manage <laughs> exactly a little much easier probably yeah. than you know i know a lot of my colleagues are out there getting smaller checks from 200 people and that yeah. that's just complicated yeah. Yeah. <laughs> That's great. Well, how, so about two years in, is it what you expected? Is it, uh, are there some surprises, some, some unexpected, you know, uh, pains, pleasures? What's, what's, what's it yeah. been like through the first two years? Yeah, I, I knew it was going to be, um, you know, I, I had a whole investment portfolio, so I knew plenty, right? I had done mm -hmm. plenty of in, venture investing from the outside and then being an LP, right? Um, but then getting inside of it, it's been it's been harder. It's been harder to learn, you know, kind of the way the system is causing outcomes and that we're okay with that, right? You know, I once had an LP say, oh, I've been doing this for 20 years and invested in a thousand companies and only 13 of them worked. <laughs> and like at, at my core, I, that's just not who I am, right? And so you are, I'm fighting a, a battle inside a system where a lot of people are like, that's cool. That's just how venture is. And I'm like, no, we need to not do that. We, <laughs> <laughs> we're closing more companies in the country than we're starting every day. And so to really understand venture's role in that and how we really have to be innovative on the process it's so funny to me it's like we've, we're picking innovative companies but we haven't innovated the asset class <laughs> it's mm -hmm. kind of it's kind of wild to me i'm like guys come on like it's investing we get, must diversify our portfolios I, here <laughs> i'm glad you said that because that's been something i cost constantly scratch my head on too and i feel like at, at our firm we've tried to be a little bit innovative in the yeah. asset class but what are are there other opportunities you think that are going uh, kind of unexploited or things that where we could evolve the model more? Yeah, you know, I think that um, every company having these insane burn rates and their own CTOs and their own CFOs is just nonsensical. So there's that. Like when you think about collaborating with other venture funds, like we should collaborate in that way too. Other mm -hmm. funds that are out there, how do we? you know, get back office support uh, in different ways, you know, a killer CTO and and we have that over four companies, right? That we might yeah. share in the portfolio and, and, and a lot more, it's so competitive when it needs to be collaborative. Like it's too early stage for people to be fighting. Yeah, you're right. Each other. Like it's not a zero sum game. It's like, if I got the best CFO in one company, that's not even competitive to the other company. Yeah. It could be a shared resource. You're, you're right. Like it, yeah. And, and then you 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 don't have people burning cash the way they are, um, and actually have time for that, and you can afford to pay really talented people. When I was at Comcast, I had 
60 employees in seven states. I was over seven regions and had a $15 billion PL. So you could give me four <laughs> startups today, right? And I'd be fine. That would be, be the right. best job ever. That would be so yeah. fun, right? To grow and scale four startups as a strategic CFO. Um, but they can't afford a strategic CFO yeah. usually. Or if they do, you know, like just some of that stuff, it just doesn't make sense. It's not how you grow business. It's like, how do you grow the overall asset class of venture capital and private equity yeah. in a way that in a way that is, is more collaborative for the future. We're gonna have to for for uh, the new businesses coming in, you know, like women of color start more businesses every day at a rate four times that of any other demographic and they're the most undercapitalized demographic oh, in the country. Right. So it's like the math isn't math in y'all like how are mm. we gonna keep be how does capitalism work? I've, yeah. I would <laughs> yeah. never never knew that. That's yeah. Incredible. Yeah. And you know, most likely to not work. Um, because of just being undercapitalized, not just in venture, but anyway, you know, loans across the entire market of, you know, equity and ownership. <laughs> so you go, guys, this isn't going to work. We got to figure something else out. I, I've been, I'm a capitalist to my core and I just think it's fragile because it hasn't been diversified over time and people haven't been paying it's, attention to like you're, who you're the right. population is. <laughs> yeah, you're right. It's almost like the strategy has gone the opposite of diversity it's gone to this like very singular and non-diversified sort of approach very 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 which is dangerous because your population capitalism has consumers at its core so like if the people cutting check actually don't know what's going on with the consumer we're starting a lot of zombie businesses and we are i mean we've got businesses that are like when I was coming up in this, you didn't get IPO until you could make money now we've had businesses been IPO since 2009 and had their first profitable quarter and I believe fundamentally at the root of that, that's why it's like very hard to have good organic growth in a business if you don't have a great consumer base. And so we're sort of been making up who the consumer is in the way that we have been investing in this country in the last, I would say the last 10 years. Um, specifically, you're right. It's gotten more homogenous and like, I don't just mean diversity in people. And I mean, like, the consumers are diverse now, whether you like it or not. Yeah. They have a very different lived experience um, than the folks that are cutting checks and picking businesses. And so I just think there's a disconnect uh, there in the fundamentals that we've got to sort of pull back together um, or it's it's going to be fragile. The market's going to stay pretty fragile if we don't. You know, this is yeah. like every investor knows that you diversify your portfolio and you de-risk that way. So like, that's what you do as an investor. That's, but for some yeah. reason in this asset class, we have not figured out that that might be important. <laughs> you know, I, you the, if you started a podcast that just talked about the fragile fragility, fragile VC or diversifying the future of venture, I would subscribe. This would be good content. <laughs> You could do a whole yeah. podcast People say that all the time, especially my poor friends who have to great. listen to me, but because I'm just such a math, I'm just yeah. such a math nerd. I'm like, wait a second. And it, my generation is the first generation where women are the breadwinner. And we're also the most diverse, mm -hmm. like more women. So like 50 something percent of women are the breadwinners of their family now from mm -hmm. millennials. And that's growing as mm -hmm. you go down in generations. And here's just the facts. Like we make 68 cents on the dollar. So even if we were saving and investing at the same rate as the generation before us, yep. they're taking out a dollar now that they're retiring at 10,000 a pop a day. 
and we're putting in 68 cents. The machine doesn't work that way. Yeah. The machine's <laughs> so going to run out of bills. There yeah. you go. <laughs> right. You're like, there's got a liquidity issue here. If I'm yeah. putting in 68 cents on the dollar, and actually I'm putting in 23 cents on the dollar as a black woman. So that we have to think about that. Like that is not math doesn't, it, you have to have money coming in to be invested as people liquidate and and we're not doing that right mm-hmm. and so i think that it, it's the same in venture it's in private equity it's across investing that we've got to diversify we have to it's not it doesn't make sense <laughs> i'll tell you now i understand it when you talk about investment as a tool for economic equity i get it now i get it why that's good it makes, yeah you you just said it it makes total sense i love investing i love money that compounds like that that's the it, tool yeah. That's not what's broken. I hate that the fight ends up being like, oh, down with capitalism. It's like, no, no, it's that like within capitalism, we have a major math problem. And yes, it's because of r- racial and gender inequities that are widespread and hundred years old, but it, that compounds on itself just as fast as money does. And so those inequities are growing in the opposite direction mm-hmm. as we need them to in order to be you know, have capitalism continue to make people wealthy and brilliant and to have great businesses that start here in the U.S. Mm-hmm. You know, it reminds me when I was when I was deployed to Afghanistan, I, I asked my uh, interpreter how long he thought the war would last. <laughs> and, and I expected him to say, you know, five years or 10 years. And he couldn't remember the word, but he said three. And I was like, three years, three decades. And he said, and then we eventually figured out what the word was after like, try, you know, back and forth. And what he meant was what he was trying to say was generations. Mm-hmm. And this is why I'm this is why I'm bringing that story up. And also Najib's on my mind because we just got him back to the States and I'm super excited. Oh, good. Oh, he got back. Okay, good. Yeah. So if you're listening, Najib, <laughs> uh, there's a shout out. But uh, oh, I'm so glad he got here. <laughs> but, uh, but 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 I think about this problem in a similar mindset is like, is this a gen? It's. Is it going to take a generation or more for this to change? What do you think? Yeah, yeah I um, I think that we are, I think every great empire lasts about 400 years <laughs> over time. Um, yeah, you're right. I don't, I don't think that we won't be a great em- empire. I think we will. I think we will reset it, but I actually don't think that it's going to be another generation. I think we are the generation that's going to see it reset. Cause I actually think the math has pulled this, pulled the thing apart. You know, you saw mm. in, in March, one of the second largest bank failure and, and this sort of the way that we just glazed over, <laughs> which means underneath that, I'm, I'm nervous that it's, it's far more fragile than people are wanting to say right now and it has to be because it's just at the end of the day that there's like the math doesn't make sense like there's not enough dollars for all the money on paper in my opinion mm-hmm. um and in that that makes me nervous but i also think it's like reset time i think you're seeing it in labor i think you're seeing it like after the financial crisis in 2008 we just didn't really rebuild the middle class mm-hmm and so less people own homes and less people, you know, we need people to own homes. It's why they can't control inflation because the only people that are getting hit with those interest rates on the mass and volume is actually businesses. Yeah. Right. Like those are the folks that That's went and used the financial system um, in from a volume perspective that have those type of arms interest rates and they keep scratching their head. I'm like, yeah, you have to have a middle class or, or you lose your ability to control inflation. And and so this is a piece I think we're in it. I think we're in a bit of the 
I think we are the generation of reset. Um, and I don't, I don't know if we all know it, but I just think that we're going to have to rebuild it a little differently. And I think um, that makes me excited. I do. It makes me excited. I like it. It gives me hope. Yeah. <laughs> I like that you think that. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> what about how are you seeing, are things improving for, you know, specifically for women, for BIPOC founders? Um, what are the, what are the consistent challenges that we still face, but, but are they improving and how are they improving? Yeah. You know, I think, um, there was a lot of hope. Like I think in 2021, there was so much capital in the market. I think post George Floyd, there was so much capital coming in saying, Hey, we're going to put money with black founders. And there's a lot of just brilliant women fund managers that have come into the market in 2021. But, um, the issue is this, the way that it works, it's an assets under management issue. Right. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, one of my big sort of fights right now is that you can't actually get access to assets under management unless you have assets under management. And so, you know, because of scale, because like for those for listeners that don't aren't aware of it, like that's where you get your operating. That's where you get your entire operating budget from is from a fee on your assets under management. And so you don't even have access. Like if, if I, I did a little test the other day. If you went to your retirement, which is where most women and folks of color's investment is, they don't have outside investment, um, unfortunately, um, and said, hey, I want to invest with women and people of color, fund managers. We're not on those platforms, right? Our funds aren't right. big enough, despite now there being lots of data and evidence to show that when you have diverse investment teams and investment fund managers, you do much better, right? right. So there was like, there was a, I don't, I'll, I, I think it was Forbes, but they said like during the downturn in 2008, if women had been managing all the funds, the women managed funds only lost 9% while the rest of the market lost 19.8%. So that 11% is a lot of money (laughs) that people lost out of their retirements and their pensions and stuff. So I think that that's sort of one of my big fights right now is actually we're going back, we're going backwards um, in almost every net worth category uh, right now in the country, not forward as far as that, that gap, um, being good. And then I think a lot of money came into the market and then the market sort of froze up in, in March. And so I think there are a lot of fund managers out there who are having a hard time raising yeah. their full their full funds now. And then that starts the whole process headed in the wrong direction. It all snowballs. Yeah. 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 What what do you have any thoughts at the cause you've been at some of these higher levels of, you know, kind of more institutional kind of uh vantage points. What could is is there anything that you believe that institutions could do to help fix the problem at that level so that it doesn't snowball down into fund managers and then subsequently down into actual founders? Like what what could institutions do better, if anything? Maybe the answer is that. No, you're absolutely right. It has to be like that's where we have to start, which this like sort of, hey, I don't even put you on my platform until you're 500 million in assets under management is the problem. Um, somebody has to break that chain and it's, it's, there's no data to prove that's a less risky fund, quite frankly. Yeah. <laughs> In fact, we see smaller funds do really well. Right. And so it's a mindset shift. Just like I say, venture has to change its mindset within the, like, I got to be out raising money every six months. That doesn't build healthy businesses, but b- much bigger than that mm-hmm. is that we have to think about how, what diversity and de-risking actually looks like. And it's a very diverse country full of people with phenomenal lived experiences you're you're a veteran too right like that's a lived experience that we should use and think about when we talk about investing that de-risks portfolios 
much more than the size on the platform. And I think if you started to see people get access to it, people are like, well, I want to invest my retirement with UD. Like you've got great returns. I'm like, you can't, I can't <laughs> access, I can't access you. You yeah. can't access me. Like, right. you know, I'm not on Fidelity's platform as an offering, you know, um, and they're like, well, is my money in venture? I'm like, it is. It's just not in a small fund like, like mine. Um, which is one of the biggest funds ever raised by someone that looks like me, right? So you see the disconnect. Yeah, totally, totally. <laughs> I, so they've got to they've, yeah. they've got to change that. They're going to have to change that. And I actually think we'll see phenomenal results by doing it. It's usually those of us with smaller funds that are a little closer to Main Street that have really good sense of how to invest up every dollar that we have. Yeah. Maybe there's a maybe there's an opportunity for you to innovate there as a, yeah. a future institution. Just, I plan on I'm it. I'm just gonna lay a breadcrumb and just drop it because I somebody with your leadership and ability and foresight, it could be in the cards. But I'll just that. You're not wrong. All right. Um, I do want to shift gears a little bit because uh, this is going fast, as as great episodes always do. Awesome. Um, I want to shift gears and I'd love I'd love to give you the opportunity to maybe talk a little bit about some of the founders that you've backed. And you can take it as you can be general, you can tell us about specific stories or just, you know, some really cool wins or exciting uh stories that, you know, I know you're proud. It's like it's like asking you to choose your favorite child and I know that's not fair, but I mean but at the same time, like tell us about some of the great founders. Oh, yes. Yeah, this is great. my favorite part. It like keeps me going. And, you know, I think at a um at a macro level all our founders sort of meet this thing they're solving real problems. Like every day I've got a lot of work workforce innovation tech in in our got couple companies like that that I just love. So how do you actually, one of them, how do you use AI to actually take the bias out of the interview process that creates oh, wow. better, better relationships? They create this insane retention rate for employees that are, that go through this process when they're getting hired. So that stuff I love all day long. I have an upscaling tech program that's getting people upscaled in, in a labor force that it's just absolutely tragic right now. It is in complete crisis. Mm. Um, I will say one of the things I'm just the most proud of um, right now is we have a company in our portfolio called Sweet Bio. So it's a wound care company and we call them the uh, penicillin of wound care because <laughs> they're actually solving the problem. And I think my, my, my healthcare background, but they were pre-revenue when they got to us had been around for eight and a half years. But what they did that was so smart that everybody missed around investing in this company is they built the actual value and the brand. So they went out and got FDA approval, CMS codes to build insurance. Yeah, FDA approval, having raised over eight years, only $7 million. How in the world did they do that? They have IP in 17 countries. The scrappiest of... Make this product for, I don't know, $30,000 less than the next thing on the market. This has always been a a billable thing to insurance. That's just been outrageously expensive. They're going to solve diabetic ulcers and people aren't going to have to get amputations. And like, there's so much they're going to take over the market. And sure enough, you know, now they're valued much, much higher than what I paid for them. And you've got publicly traded companies coming to the table asking if they can distribute their product because they have a business model that can't pay. And I just was like, everyone just missed it. They didn't actually understand the value. If you just Mm -hmm. say, oh, we only, you have to have this much revenue or we won't talk to you. It's like, 
Yes, okay. that makes yes. that makes it easier, but there it doesn't always necessarily get to the like the gems of, of the products that we have. I have a company that it gets and keep people housed who have Section Eight and government vouchers, right? Which is another crisis in the country, right? She reduces evictions by ninety percent, so the revenue there is stable because the government's paying their rent, right? But the person isn't stable, so they use data and the social determinants of health. To basically give every person a score and give the building a score to keep them in the building and so the person's always getting their rent because the person has been stabilized and so if you're not in the everyday world like you're just gonna miss this stuff they're getting million dollar contracts like weekly basis we're having those calls right now because mm-hmm. people are like it's a crisis like oh my gosh you can solve it we love data like how did you use data to solve a problem that many people are experiencing that you just wouldn't even think about venture being the thing that would go back a company like that and now they're going to be across the country like and doing such good work all of our companies are just doing such good work in the world and it's because of their lived experience yeah it sounds like it too and it sounds like this is about you know the the types of people and visionary ideas you're backing they're not just making money although they are going to make a lot of money but they're they're more more importantly they, these are impactful these are these are innovations that are impacting like way our quality of life and way of life like it's more it's not another dating app right right exactly yeah. in many cases i don't even think they realize how much money their companies can make which makes myself and my partner mark good partners for them cuz i i i don't think you have to trade one for the other um, because i believe in the consumer and I believe the consumer will choose that housing one. Landlords are going to pay for that all day long because churning people out and having to get new tenants is incredibly expensive. So when you understand business models, and I, and I think we bring that to the table, and they are they're trying to solve the world's problems. Um, and and I think that's actually the only way that we're going to make money for the future um, is people who are solving real real problems. We got um, a lot of those. Well, yeah, we got when, a lot of those to solve. <laughs> when interest rates are nine percent, like and the money's not just flowing, it's not the champagne yeah. and cocaine era anymore, right? Yep. It's like, mm, you're gonna have to solve real actual problems that people will pay right. for. <laughs> right. Right. You you talked a bunch about we've talked a lot about the the value of a shared experience and and just diversity of experiences and diversity in general. What about, but I know you're also, it sounds like you're really long on millennial, the millennial generation, which some people have already written that generation off unfairly. Oh, they, they're they lazy, they're this, they don't show up, whatever. Everybody got a trophy, whatever. But but I'm curious, what, uh, and by the way, I'm not I'm suggesting that, I disagree with that assessment, but, but what are... <laughs> What are you, how do you harness the kind of the core reasons? Like, what are the core reasons that you think millennials have so much to give, why they're natural leaders, that kind of stuff? What are, yeah, it comes back to my um, sort of thesis about the value of diversity. We're the most diverse generation. So, to Mm. me, to me, we're the most de risked generation that the US has ever had with a very different lived experience. We grew up with technology, right? Like the first generation to sort of grow up with technology um, at our fingertips and it made the world small for us, right? I We have access to things and, and are globally fighting fights with people we've never met and we're the first generation to do that. So then you can solve problems in a global way because you actually can have access to it. I can see it. I can watch it. I can actually interact with people in Australia and 
Afghanistan and the women mm-hmm. of Iran, the women of Iran, right? Like that fight is because of a new generation of people who see a different way of living, uh, even outside of their own country. And I think it's good for Americans to see a different way of living outside of our own country. But I think that we're um, really the way that we think and the diverse. And I think a little bit we're also the most broke generation in a long time. Which mm-hmm. <laughs> here's why I say that's important. Yeah. It's because we value things differently than the generations before we are. We have a lot less mm. money than the generation mm-hmm. before us. Like 25% of millennials have two, two or more jobs. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, I'm almost 40. Like, we're not talking 22-year-olds anymore. No. <laughs> it's like this Millennials is, are getting old. Yeah, we are. We're getting up there, <laughs> we're, right? We're sort of yeah. taking over the space. And so I think that's why I think, like, we value things differently. The fight is different. We, You know, people will go travel versus buy a home. Yep. And that that's a good thing. Like, I think we're really going to be the only way to move this thing forward. I think we've shifted the world on its head a little bit. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and the systems haven't caught up, um, but they're going to have to um, mm-hmm. in a lot of ways. And so I think people are writing that, writing the generation off because of like who represents being a m- millennial, um, which is like, you know, Mark Zuckerberg and Elon Musk. But that's not that's actually not that's not actually, all of us it's not, all of us. It's not a great representation because we are we're super diverse and that yeah. means that even those two it's funny that you use those two as an example look at how diverse those two are. are exactly right and even like their upbringings their lived experience yeah totally different right and so yep. i think that's what's interesting and um that and then when you have diversity it only gets more diverse from there right so there mm-hmm. will never be a generation that's uh less diverse than us and so you accept that and then you go okay then we're starting something new here we're the leaders of what i think is going to be a very different country but i'm pretty excited about it to take what's fundamental but then to add that on top i think is is the way forward that's i love that perspective that's thank you for sharing that that's great Mm -hmm. um what advice would you have two more two more questions we're almost out of time but uh (laughs) what advice would you have for um you know, you know, both both for founders, but just in general, young people that are are seeking to be leaders, maybe seeking mentorship. What advice would you have for young people, um, especially founders um, that that are just trying to make a difference and trying to like build something or have a vision to change the world today? Yeah, I. One thing I learned early and one thing I learned recently, I'll say it this way. <laughs> one thing I learned early is to know yourself really, really well. I think having kids so young for me, like kids will tell you, teach you all about yourself. <laughs> you know, they'll really take you out. If they, You know, they're so much wiser than me, both my kids to this day. And, and they always make me better and they always make me look in the mirror. And so I think that at sort of the foundation of becoming a leader has been so beneficial for me because I really know myself because when you are a young leader, everybody thinks they can give you feedback and you have to know what's true so that you can filter and navigate and swim in those those waters so like if someone says you're impatient dm like you're totally right like absolutely right like that is it doesn't hurt my feelings i know that about myself if someone says i'm not collaborative that's gonna hurt my feelings because that's not true i've got to be able to roll through feedback that's not meant for me and the only way to do that is to really like know yourself and sort of accept that and be willing to share that um with the world um, and then I had someone recently when I said, you know, my career has been pretty lonely. I've been the only one, the only woman or the youngest or the only person of color, or the only black person in the room. He said, well, you're not lonely. <laughs> I was like, what? 
He said, no, inherently, if you can say that out loud to somebody, you're not lonely. And I think so wow. many found, I think so many founders feel this way. It feels like a lonely journey. Mm-hmm. Um, he goes, you're not lonely, you're bored. And I was like, and then I like did like this whole life journey on like, wow, well, what is boredom? Like, what does that even feel like? Like, we don't mm. really talk that way. Right. Uh, in yeah. this country where we're like, do we let people be bored? Like, what does it feel like? It feels different for all of us. For me, it feels like anxiousness. It feels like, like, um, lots of things. Like I don't wear that well. And it's also, I think our Achilles heel and we don't say to ourselves, Hey, I'm actually bored. We do this with kids, right? Like kids, you got to be able to sit in the chair and learn that way. It's like, no, like oh. we don't learn that way. And then you, you become a behavioral problem versus wait a second. Right. Like they're, they're, they're pacing. Cause that's how they take information. And yeah. they've yeah. got to be doing two things at once. And so I think really understanding like, where do you get, where does your brain not get fired up? Because that ends up being kind of your Achilles heel when you have to do so many things. It can be the thing that takes your business down or you down or that causes burnout or whatever it is. Right. It, it it's like really exploring like where are the moments where I feel bored? It often feels like imposter syndrome because you're saying and doing things that the rest of the room don't understand. Mm-hmm. And that will feel like you're the one that doesn't know what's going on, but actually your mind might just be like, eh, they don't get it. <laughs> and it yeah. feels like all kinds of things. And it doesn't actually, you don't actually say to yourself, Hey, I'm just like bored with this. I need to do this differently. I need to stimulate my mind. And so really understanding how you stimulate your mind is so important and handing off the things that don't stimulate your mind and staying out of that space. You can't be in meetings 100% of your day with things that are going to bore you because you will not be successful. So it's about knowing that and from an energy perspective. I, I love such great advice and um, it's it's definitely worth all of us, not just not the question was directed at founders, but I think all of us can, yeah, can learn absolutely. a lot from having that sort of introspection. So thank you for sharing that. Um, Danielle, you've been a phenomenal guest. I'm I'm so excited to meet you. I can't wait to see you in person. Next time I'm Ditto. in Colorado, we're getting together and hanging out. Let's and, do it. And I, and I think uh, I think I speak on behalf of all of our listeners. Uh, I, you've had an, uh, just an unbelievable career thus far. But I'm excited about what's maybe yet to come still for you. So we'll keep following you, and uh, Good, maybe do. we'll have you on the episode, have you on the show in like five years, ten years from now, and we'll we'll revisit. How's this that sounds sound? perfect. Yes, exactly. Right. Just getting Wonderful. started. <laughs> well, to conclude, why don't you just tell our audience uh, where they can find you uh, online? Yeah, it will be demifun.com, and then you can find me on Instagram and on LinkedIn, Danielle Shoots. Wonderful. Thanks, Danielle. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of Found in the Rockies. You can find links in the show notes or go to nextfrontiercapital.com to get transcripts, links, and contact information for today's guests. If you like what you heard and want more, please don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe to get notified as our new episodes drop every two weeks. We'll see you next time.